but it talks about capturing every thought and 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 holding it captive to Jesus. That's a great idea, but when I have suicidal thoughts that just pop into my head, I don't know how to capture those and give them to Christ. Welcome to the Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Hello and welcome to the Dismantle, a show for community, not converts. I'm your host Joey. On this show, we attempt to dismantle or take apart an issue that has the potential to be problematic for the church by having a discussion with a guest who either has insight or experience with that subject. Now, we won't always agree, but we don't want to argue. Our goal is to gain understanding and perspective by sharing our views in a way that builds bridges and not barriers. Our guest this week is Aaron Smith. Aaron is a father, a writer, and blogger. He's been featured on HuffPost Live, Father Factor, Stigma Fighters Anthology, and was a staff writer for Bedlam Magazine. He has spoken on the stages of the Shattering Stigma Conference. He and his kids live in Portland, Oregon. Aaron, welcome to The Dismantle. Hey, how you doing today? Doing good, man. Thanks for joining. Yeah, no problem. Glad to be here. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and we are about to dive into a, uh, a can of worms for sure. I'm really looking forward to this episode. But before we dive into our topic today, Aaron, how did you get introduced to church and faith? What's, uh, what's some of your background with religious stuff? Well, I was born in, into it. I, I often say I was born into the pews. I'm from Utah originally, but I'm not Mormon. I'm not LDS. <laughs> I grew up uh, evangelical, kind of charismatic, a little bit of dispensationalism in there, just kind of a mixed hodgepodge of non, non-denominational non church, pretty much. Uh, so I grew up there in Utah that way, which was very different, and uh, raised by my grandparents, and my grandma was really the matriarch of my faith. Uh, she taught me to love the Bible, to pray, to do all that stuff, and I just, like I said, I was born into it. I, I was raised young up in the in church. I was teaching my own Sunday school classes when I was like my peer Sunday school classes when I was young. Um, I got into uh, really helping out at church after I was 18 and uh, it's just kind of gone from there. That's awesome. Now, anybody who starts, as you said, born into the pews usually has a journey aspect to their faith. Would you say that that's true for you too? <laughs> yeah, just slightly. <laughs> Just slightly. That's awesome. And I'm sure we're going to unpack that a little bit uh, as we continue our conversation. But, you know, thanks for sharing your uh, your background with all that. Oh, of course. So our topic on the Dismantle today is a highly anticipated one. Ever since we started the podcast, this has been the one topic that most people have suggested we discuss, and that's the topic of mental health. Now, we're not even going to scratch the surface with a lot of what we talk about today because this topic is so vast. Uh, but Aaron, as someone familiar with this subject, I think we need to define what a mental illness is before we even start the conversation. How would you define a mental illness? Is it kind of like a vague thing that many things can fit into or are there specific criteria that merit the title? Well, okay, first of all, before we go any further, I need to state this. Mental illness is a physical illness. Okay. It's just like diabetes. It's just like Crohn's disease. It's something that people live with. It's a condition. Now, it's a condition that affects your thoughts, your moods, and your emotions. But that's all stuff that's built into your body. So I, I don't want people to think mental illness is something kind of ethereal out there somehow affecting something. It affects your, your, the physical organ of your brain is what mental illness affects. 
Um, if you if you look up with Mayo Clinic or anything like that, they say um, it's a mental health condition that affects your emotions, moods, um, and um, thoughts, and that's what defines a mental illness. Um, so all mental illnesses fall under that category. Now, talk to me about the symptoms of mental illness. You know, obviously, as you just said, this is a th- this is a disease essentially that affects more than just you know. There's there's not just a specific target with this. It's it's all inclusive as to the the physicality of your body. Are there symptoms of mental illnesses? Are they noticeable? Are they hidden? Frequent? Sporadic? Like, how would you be able to tell if someone has a mental illness? Okay, this is where it gets a little more complex because just as different different health diagnoses have different symptoms, different mental illnesses have different symptoms. There's not like one overarching idea of mental illness has this symptom and this is how you know it's a mental illness. The only way you know it's a mental illness is because it affects, uh, like I said, the thoughts, the um, moods, and the emotions. Hmm. But as far as specific things, I mean, for example, I live with bipolar 2. What that means is that my mood shifts anywhere from really high, what's called mania, to really low depression. Um, in in those mood swings, I can also have irritability. In, in mania, stuff feels good. I, I can even have a heightened sexual drive. Um, I can I can feel fantastic. My ego is boosted. Um, I I make decisions that I normally wouldn't make. Maybe be a little bit more adventurous. So some people really like mania for that reason, but it's really destructive because you you're not really thinking about what you're doing, and it's. We can go into that a little bit later with stuff, but um, but then my friends, for example, um, in 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 L.A., she lives with um, paranoid schizophrenia, and her symptoms are very different. Her symptoms can include uh, auditory and visual hallucinations. Um, it can include a feeling of paranoia, uh, rushed speech, and uh, not making sense when you're talking. So. Depending on what illness you're talking about is going to is going to depend on the that that's what's going to depend on the um, symptoms that you're talking about, um, which is why we when we define it as a physical illness, it's a lot better to understand that um, since there are so many different mental illnesses, we treat them like physical illnesses, and we don't lump them all together as like oh this is a mental illness so this is this is what it means. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Like you wouldn't just go to the doctor and say, uh, my head hurts and there's one fix for that. That could be one thing. That could be many things. And if Mm -hmm. I understand it correctly, it's the same with mental illness. It's not just one size fits all. Well, I mean, even even I have friends that that have bipolar as well. We seem to kind of gravitate towards each other, which is really funny. Hmm. Um, But even their experience of the illness is different than my experience of the illness. So you can't say even necessarily that that I understand mental illness as a whole and this is what it is. And you can't even say that I understand one diagnosis and this is what it is every time. Sure, they have family traits. They have things in common. They have things that qualify as the diagnosis. You know, you don't just go in and be like, I have a headache and, and I have a fever. And they're like, well, that's just nothing there are things that, that, you know, that qualify as a diagnosis in physical illnesses, same with mental illnesses, but the experience of the mental illness is going to differ from person to person and from life to life and how the illness manifests itself in the thoughts, moods, and emotions. 
Now, I love how you describe it in your blog that it's not a virus or an infection. It's a broken brain. Mm -hmm. Dealing with this issue is layered on so many levels. And I've really learned a lot just from reading your blog, but you're trying to manage the actual illness itself. There's the symptoms. There's the awareness that, like you said, you're broken. And I say that in air mm -hmm. quotes. Right. Do you struggle with your image and how you're portrayed as someone who's quote unquote broken? Mm, not really. I mean, when you get into the idea of intersectionality in uh, social justice and, and feminism and stuff like that, it includes everybody, even people with um, even people with chronic diseases and fighting ableism and people that, that just cater to people that are well. Mm -hmm. So I don't struggle with the image of being broken because I'm not irreparable. Um, there's treatment that happens for me, but it's not like it's going to fix me completely and make me 100% okay, but I still live with that. And I live with it in a very open and robust way, the best I can to my limitations. Mm. Um, one of my limitations is that I don't have enough energy to do things. Sometimes I, I use, I use all my energy sometimes just getting out of bed. Sometimes I have more energy and, and I can go out and, and socialize and do things like that. But I only have a limited reserve of energy and I, sometimes I just can't push myself any further. That's just a limitation I have, though. That's not what makes me broken. What makes me broken is that my brain has these neural receptors in there, and they're not getting the chemicals that they need, or they're not firing the way they're supposed to, or they're not releasing the chemicals they need. You know, things like serotonin, dopamine, epinephrine, um, all of these things. That's what makes me broken. Just like you could say somebody with diabetes has a broken pancreas, I've got a broken brain is the same idea. So it's not, it's not an identity that I take on that I'm broken. It's a reality that I live with. Of I've got something in my head that doesn't work right. Now, if, if you don't mind me asking a little bit of a personal question, mm -hmm. how did your faith and your relationship with God, let me rephrase that because I actually don't like that. Now, as you, as you became aware that, uh, I'm trying not to be insensitive with this. Uh, with the, with the ask, ask, ask however you want. Okay. I'm one. I'm not going to be offended. And two, if you're trying to, if you're trying to think of a way to ask it, that tells me that a lot of people think that way. Yeah. And however you need to ask it is fine. Like I'm not going to get offended. It, you, you, you say whatever you want. It's fine. I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Now, with the addition of a mental illness into your story, did your faith or relationship with God change in any way? Just, just a little bit, just a little bit. Um, I go into this in some of my essays. I, I just, I just finished up an essay for a book called whisper in the pews, which just came out. It's an anthology of people writing about, um, mental illness in the church. Hmm. Um, and one thing that I touch in there is that there wasn't space for mental illness when I was actively in church and doing things, there just wasn't a framework for it. Let, let me explain a little bit. Sure. When I discovered that one of the symptoms of a mental illness can be an increased sense of guilt, 
it confused me because I had grown up associating guilt with the conviction from the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now I had this guilt issue of like, maybe it leads to something else. Maybe this overall sense of guilt that I'm feeling isn't spiritual. And when I approached my pastor about it and, and asked him, he just kind of went, huh? Like he didn't know and he didn't have anything to say. Um, now, I got diagnosed late when I was 28, um, so I spent a lot of time in the church, um, about 10 years in the church, undiagnosed. I never thought that that, that mental illness meant somebody was, was, was I, I don't know, I, I never thought it, it meant something spiritual was wrong or anything like that with them. I understood it was just a disease, but it was never something for me because it was always other people. Like I didn't have a mental illness. Other people did, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. Um, and looking back, what I can see is my relationship with God, even though I didn't have a framework for mental illness, my relationship with God was influenced by it because when I felt really good, I felt like I was close to God. And when I was depressed, I felt like I had either sinned or there was something spiritually wrong with me or I was far away from God or insert whatever thing that makes you feel horrible from God is, you know, yeah. am, am I a huge sinner? Am I, and, and it really fucked with me, man. I mean, it, it, it just did because I was basing, I was basing my relationship on God, not on who he is or on grace or on Jesus, but I was basing it on, on how I felt because that's what I grew up understanding. Mm. So there was no framework for emotions outside of emotions being somehow spiritual and somehow spiritual indicators of things. And without some other framework of like health and with illness and, 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 um, and medical issues and things like that, I was left, like I said, I mean, I, I was left just assuming that if I felt good, I was okay with God. And if I felt bad, that something was wrong or some demonic force was was messing with me or whatever. And I have journal after journal after journal, and it's got this repetitive theme of, God, why am I so far away from you? You know, can, can, can you tell me what I did wrong? I must be guilty. I must this. Please cleanse me, oh God. Please do this. You know, a lot of stuff going back into the Psalms. Yeah. Um, but, but praying them in a way that was out of this desperation for the feeling to change. Not praying them in a way of like um, situations to change, but more of this feeling in me that needed to change because I couldn't figure out that I was depressed. And when I felt really good, I couldn't figure out that I was manic. I didn't have anybody to look at me and say, hey, there's something going on. You seem off. You should get this checked out because there was no framework for mental illness. Yeah. That's eye-opening as far as someone who has been around people who suffer from mental illness, but we've never talked about how they see the world and how they see their relationship with God. Mm -hmm. Like, I almost feel like I, I just need to pause and just, you know, I'll, I'll probably edit a little bit of this, but that's mind-blowing to me. Oh, it is. Just putting vernac just putting vernacular to that. Oh, it totally is. I mean, that's why it changed so radically my relationship with God, because it was um it was a thing of 
shifting away from a feeling-based paradigm with God and shifting into learning how to see God through I don't even know what the word is, just through something else, through through grace, through Jesus. Through Jesus is really where, where it took me and understanding that Jesus is the full revelation of God and understanding that that if that's who he is and that's how he acts, then I I'm not outside of grace just because I feel like shit. Yeah. But but it, it took forever for that paradigm to change because, again, the paradigm was always your emotions are the spiritual barometer for you. Right. Your your, your thoughts, how you, how you capture your thoughts and turn them over to Christ, like it talks about in Philippians or something like that, capture every thought, or Colossians or something, I don't know. Um, but it talks about capturing every thought and, and, and holding it captive to Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's a great idea, but when I have suicidal thoughts that just pop into my head, I don't know how to capture those and give them to Christ because they just popped in there. Right. And now am I not following scripture? Am I not doing what I need to be doing as a healthy Christian? Am I not being mature and growing in my faith and helpful to my church and the other people because I can't stop these thoughts from popping into my head or I can't stop these emotions from happening where I'm feeling so depressed or I'm feeling so anxious, you know, cast all your cares on Jesus is what people quote. And I'm like, that's great, but I have panic attacks. So what do I do with that? Like I, I can't, I can't emphasize enough that that there is so much out there that teaches us any framework of mental illness becomes something of an experiential idea of God. You know, somehow you're experiencing God, you're experiencing the spiritual, and any sign of mental illness or whatever becomes a barometer for how good you're doing. And again, it comes back to that that just turns everything into moralism instead yeah. of turning it into Christianity. But at the same time, we're used to moralism because you do good and it proves that you're a good Christian. So all these feelings that you have, a lot of people internalize them and end up walking away feeling like they are themselves broken somehow, or they are themselves sin ridden, or they are themselves, whatever, sort of a self-loathing because they can't get rid of these feelings that are happening because the brain is misfiring. And when you hate yourself, you don't seek treatment. You don't seek help. And if you don't have a framework for mental illness that maybe this is something bigger than just a spiritual feeling, if you don't have a framework larger than that, you never even think to seek help. Right. So you just live with it. Right, because if all the help should come from the institution that gives the ultimate help, you know, mm-hmm. salvation, and they're not talking about it, then maybe it's you. Oh, so, so, so much. Like if, if pastors don't preach about mental illness, they're doing a disservice to the people in their congregation. One in four people will have a mental health crisis in their life. That that's, that's the statistic. Wow. That is the statistic. One in four. So you look out over a pew of people, you count off four of them and one of them is going to have some sort of mental health crisis and the, and the pulpit's not talking about it. 
the pulpit's talking about um, how guilt is, again, the conviction of the Holy Spirit and how God used it to bring us back to him. When I'm sitting here going, I feel guilty that I, that I spilled coffee this morning or that you didn't have jelly for your PB&J, I feel guilty about that. What is that telling me about my spirituality and about how much God loves me? Shit, man. That's yeah. Unreal. That's yeah. Unreal. And then you get into the whole thing of what happens if the, okay, so I need to back up and explain something here. Sure. Suicide. I'm, I'm going to go here. Yep. Suicide is a natural progression of mental illness. It's, it's the terminal ending of the disease. So mm. if I'm depressed to the point that I don't see any other way out, and I take my life, how much, if that framework exists of it's all a spiritual matter, what are you going to think about that person? Hmm. And there's no respect for the family that goes through it. I, I, I wrote about this in Whisper in the Pews. I watched a, a church and a family wrestle with this because a prominent person in the church committed suicide. And finally, they started talking about mental illness for about a year, and then it kind of went away because... It was just sort of a hot topic, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know yeah. why they stopped talking about it. But but there was so much like, well, he must have not been right with God. And there was also so much like, does that mean he's going straight to hell? And there's so much of this stuff. And you're like, wait a second here. This is, this is, this is a terminal illness that he's wrestling with and dealing with. If he's not getting treatment, of course this is what's going to happen. Because your brain lies to you. Yeah. Your brain tells you you're worthless. Your brain tells you there's no other thing. Or there's simply just too much emotional pain. And emotional pain is something you can feel in your body. And it hurts. Like heartbreak. You know, you get your heart broken, you feel it. So imagine being so depressed that you feel crushed, that you feel pain, and you're just looking for something to relieve it. That's that's what I, I, I'm also I'm I've, I've also self harm in the past, and that's why I self harm because there's too much too much emotional pain. I can't deal with it, so there's a release of some sort. Yeah, but see, all of these things are looked upon especially from the church they're looked upon as like bad like don't self-harm because that's satan's territory and and suicide is selfish and they don't understand because again nobody's talking about it Now, you're pretty vocal about it, which is great, and I and I love it. I, I love the content that you're providing. You're actually giving voice to not only so many, but you're providing a, an in-depth look for those of us who have never understood it. And, and you know, hats off to you, man. I, I just applaud the work that you're doing, and I Thanks. think it's great. Um, but what has the church's response been to how free and transparent and you know for lack of a better word gritty you've been about your experience like i said one in four people deal with this so usually when somebody reads something that i've written or i talk to them they're like wow thank you this is what 
this is what I'm experiencing or this is what this person that I love is experiencing and you're giving voice to it and you're talking about how the church should do it. Some essays people have told me they've given to their pastor to read, um, you know, some things that I've written and a lot of people, some, some of them are pastors and they say, you know, how do I talk about this better? Uh, some people aren't pastors. They're like, how do I get my pastor to talk about this? It's been really accepted openly and widely mm. because it's happening so much. Yeah. I don't, I haven't had any, I mean, heck I had a pastor friend of mine. Um, he ended up being a friend of mine and he wasn't when we originally talked cause he was just some guy, but, but his wife was living with, I believe it was paranoid schizophrenia. And he called me and, and wanted to like consult with me of like, what do I do? How do I talk about this with the church? What do I do about my wife? how do I handle this stuff? What do I do? Hmm. And we talked about it for like an hour, like just straight up, like honestly talking about it and being real that sometimes Jesus doesn't heal this shit. Yeah. That's where it gets tricky for people because some people in the church have responded to me and into the whole conversation that, um, Jesus can heal anything. So he's going to heal this. He's going to take care of it. And I'm like, yeah, but he doesn't always heal cancer. He right. doesn't always heal diabetes. He doesn't, I, I wear glasses. He didn't heal my glasses either, yeah. or my eyesight or anything like that. Right. So sometimes Jesus doesn't heal mental illness. That doesn't mean that the person is somehow less faithful or anything. I mean, I had somebody, a friend of mine straight up was told that if somebody has a mental illness, it's because they are possessed by demons. Like this is this day and age that, wow. that this this is being talked about in this manner. Hmm. Like just straight up. And they were like, and Jesus can can give power over the demons, but you just have to have faith. Like some magical I don't even know what. Like like faith the church treats faith like some magic fairy dust. Yeah. Instead of, t instead of, I mean, the root word pistos can better be translated as allegiance or trust, but we don't translate it that way. We translate it as magic. If you have enough faith, God will do this. If you have enough belief, if you have enough, and it kind of gets sprinkled over stuff like if you have enough faith, it'll get healed. If you have enough, and what does that do to the person who's not healed? Right. It tells them they don't have enough faith. It tells them they're not a good enough Christian. And so some people have responded with, you know, well, God can heal and God can do this. And, but honestly, the majority of people, whether they've addressed it publicly or whether they've messaged me privately, they're saying this needs to be talked about more because I know somebody and you're helping me understand their experience. Or they're saying, this is me. Thank you for talking about this because because nobody else is this this isn't being talked about and this is me what's going on individuals have responded very well church as a whole and specific churches i have yet to see a real dent being made in whole congregations with this there are some congregations where it is like a couple years ago um rick warren his son committed suicide and they held some summit about mental illness and things like that and they talked about it and it was really good but the conversation's kind of gone away now yeah 
It's like, hey, we, we touched on that thing that you asked us to, and now we can move on to our next series. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I don't, I don't blame Rick Warren for that in any way, shape or form. It's just the, the reality of, of society and people and culture and, and how we are trained to think about things, especially in America. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we still have this issue. It hasn't been solved. It wasn't solved with the summit. It, the church and mental illness, they coexist and if we don't talk about it, we're never going to find a way for them to coexist without crashing into each other. Right. It's uh, for some reason, the, the verse uh, just popped into my mind where Jesus says, uh, you won't always have me, but you'll always have the poor. And, right. and yeah, maybe he was talking about the, the physical poor, but maybe he's also talking about the, the, the mentally poor, the emotionally poor, the spiritually poor, sure. uh, you know, you're, you're, we're always going to have this issue. Maybe it's more prominent now because of 2018 advances in medicine and all that, but this always has been a problem. Totally. And we need to, con- and we need to continue talking about it. Yeah. I mean, if we don't talk about it, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And more and more people are going to walk around with self-loathing that they can't fix themselves. And more people are going to be subject to suicide. And, you know, you you could substitute a ton of stuff in there when Jesus said, you're not always going to have me, but you're going to have the poor. You're going to have illness. You're going to have abuse. You're going to have whatever it might be. And it's hard because people want to say that Jesus is – how do I put this, man? Like they always want to say that Jesus is there, that Jesus is offering a promise, that that he's like – that he's going to save you. Like he's the superhero, right? Right. But Jesus doesn't promise that. What he promises is that he will be with us in suffering. Yeah. Now the other trick to that – is that promise does me shit all good when I'm having a depressive episode. Mm. So the promise then lies on the body of Christ to show up. Yeah. If, if they're going to represent Jesus, then they better show up in somebody's life that needs Jesus and they better sit in that suffering and they can do a ton of stuff. I mean, yeah. it's not like, it's, it's not like mental illness is just something that somebody has to go through alone in isolation. Isolation kills. It, 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 it does. And showing up, doing a food train for somebody who's got a mental illness, that's a huge benefit right there because when I'm depressed, my appetite, it's gone. Right. And not only that, but if I do have an appetite, I don't have the energy to go cook something. I don't, I, I don't even want to microwave a hungry meal, you know, like – I don't want to do anything. I want to lay in bed and, and wallow in my own depression. Like yeah. that's what depression makes me want to do. So what would happen if somebody came over with a casserole and said, Hey, I'm going to heat this up for you. Can I sit and eat with you? Even if, even if the other person just kind of picks at it or whatever, giving them company, doing something Yeah. in first John, it talks about, um, well, I mean, it talks about loving your brother and sister and oh. talks about doing that. And, and it also says, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So if we look at that and we're called to love in that manner, then it's going to be uncomfortable and we're going to be in, in, in uncomfortable situations, but we're still required to love. 
Yeah. Are not required, I should say, were called to love. And it gets messy because you're like, oh, this person's depressed again. Yeah, they didn't get fixed. There, there wasn't some magic pill for them. This person's in therapy and they're still going through this. Yeah. This person's with the psychiatrist and it's still happening. Yeah, because we have to experiment with drugs because we don't know which ones are going to fix you. If they can at all, or if they don't even fix you, if they just treat the symptoms, if they do this. I mean, psychiatrists, just as a side note here, going to a psychiatrist is great, and I depend on mine, but finding the right balance of medications is hell. Because you try one, you're on it for six weeks, it's not working, you got to go off of it, and that takes another like six weeks for it to get out of your system, then you got to try a different one, and you're going back and forth and back and forth, and all these side effects, dry mouth, headaches, restless sleeping, um, sexual side effects, I mean, all of this stuff. And you're just kind of going through it, trying to find something to help your symptoms so that you don't end up killing yourself. Mm. Like, that's my experience. That's what happened with me. Right. And probably the experience of many, many other people who, back to your original point, just feel so much guilt and shame about it that they don't talk about it. Yeah. Why am I going to talk about it? You know, I mean, people don't talk about like like places that are like, you know, porn's evil, then you just hide it away. So if you're hiding that away, then why are you going why aren't you going to hide away something that makes you feel even guiltier or even more shame? Because and shame isolates and isolation kills. Now, Aaron, you've said that you're a Christian who doesn't go to church. Can you share with me how you came to that decision and what life is like post church? Sure. I came to this decision because I kept getting shit on by churches. Um, I often say that I feel like the church's mistress. I was good enough to help. I was good enough to preach. I was good enough to teach. Um, I was good enough to lead music. Um, I was good enough to volunteer and to do all these things. But as soon as something happened, like a depressive episode, and I pulled back from the community, nobody came to find me. And that happened again and again and again. And it hurts. It still hurts. It's, it's still raw for me. Um, life post church is really confusing for me because I'm also going through, I'm still going through kind of a deconstruction of my faith and a reconstruction of it from what I had when I was a kid, which psychologically is normal at this, at this age. Um, but at the same time, it's also really difficult because like there's all this textual criticism of the Bible and how you read it and what you do. And I'm kind of sorting through this stuff by myself. So it's kind of lonely, but hopefully my sorting through it can help other people, which is why I write about it when I do. But yeah, it's not that I don't want to go to church because I do. I like, I've gone to an Anglican church up here a couple of different times or Episcopalian actually, um, a couple of different times and it's, it's good. And like, like I, I went to an Episcopalian school when I was a kid, so I'm used to it, Okay. but it's, it's not the same as an evangelical church. Sure. 
there, there's there's something that that's off and different. And and I love I love liturgy. I mean, I used to, when I led music, I used to sneak liturgy in there. It was like we're gonna sing a confession, we're gonna sing uh, Gloria, we're gonna you know I used to like sneak you stuff in there so people were like dog. <laughs> I know totally. But I was getting people I was getting people to do liturgy that were that weren't familiar with it yeah. because I thought it was so important and and what we sing and how we worship shapes how we believe so i'm like let's 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 focus on jesus let's do a liturgy that that brings us to the table that brings us to communion let's let's do this but at the same time i can't give myself over to a church because i've been hurt so much and also to be honest i don't know how to exist in a congregation where I'm not doing something like ever since I was 18, I started off as a youth leader. Then I took over the junior high. Um, then I took over young adults. Um, and then I started interim preaching, um, from Utah up into Wyoming. Um, from there I changed churches and I was doing worship, uh, you know, leading music, doing all that stuff. And I was doing that stuff up until I was about 27. And then after that, when I moved up here to Oregon, um, I got involved with the church and I volunteered. Like I was running soundboard and I was helping to teach sometimes like some of the um, so some of the classes and things like that. And I was doing this stuff and then I'd pull back and nobody would come for me. So it just made me feel like I'm great to be used, but... I'm not good enough to love. And I resonate with that so much because it's not just being busy for busy sake. It's not just, well, service is the responsibility of the Christian. Sometimes this is how you worship. This is how you connect to God. Yeah. And when that's taken away from you in the very institution that should foster that relationship with God you're left on the outside and you're kind of lost. Yeah. I totally understand what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, a good example of that is like, like I, like when I would go to worship services, I would never really sing unless I was leading worship just because that's not how I connected unless I was doing something. But then that gets taken away. And what do I have? I don't have any way to, so here's the other here's the other weird thing. I don't have any way to connect with God. And I've grown up think this is what happened when I, when I first got diagnosed. I, I I don't have a way to connect with God. But I've grown up thinking that my moods are the are the barometer for how I feel about God. So now what do I do because I feel like God has given up on me since I'm not going to church. And I can't trust my emotions. Exactly. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll lead to this, to this, this just shit pile of stuff. And this baggage that I have from growing up with moralism and, 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 and the baggage that I have with church and with my own stuff and all of this. And I don't have anyone to help me sort through it. And I can't trust my emotions that I was told was the barometer. And I can't do what I've always done because I feel angry at the church for not coming after me. I feel hurt. I feel, so I'm, I'm sort of left wandering around in a big wilderness by myself. 
but but the good the good thing good thing about all this i've connected with other people that are sitting in the same wilderness Hmm. like through twitter especially yeah and i know people are going to shit on it and be like well twitter's not real church and and bullshit it's got sermons it's got connection it's got community i've met people from twitter um we've we've connected we've connected outside of it i text with some of them now we talk sure this i've got a couple of close friends that live by me like two of them and that's about it other than that my community is online and i'm thankful for it because they're going through the wilderness just like i am and we're kind of setting up these little these little posts, these little oasis for people to find us and for people to come that are weary and heavy laden. And we're trying to give them rest like Jesus did. Hell we're, we're chatting across the country about this, you know? Yeah, totally. It's, it's totally. happening. And yeah, I mean, anybody who would say, well, that's not real church. I would just ask, well, what defines real church? Yeah. You know, is it the, is it the building that you feel so comfortable in so that you can hear exactly what you believe or is it the, group of people who profess to have a relationship with Jesus who are bearing one another's burdens like he asked us to. Exactly. I mean, for me, this goes back into a theology of baptism, which I'm going to get all Theo nerd on you for a second. Go for it. Baptism to me is a congregation saying to a person, you are one of God's people. And the person saying to the congregation, you are the people of God. So if that's what baptism is, being dunked and being, you know, coming back up in, into new life and things like that. But right. if that's what baptism is, then why what's what's wrong with us confessing that to people through a computer screen at the same time? We may not have the act of we may not have the, the actual act of the sacrament of, of, of baptizing and then coming up, but we can still say to people, you're one of the people of God. And they can say back to us, you are the people of God. Hmm. And and it joins us together. It, it it binds us together. Right. And then you introduce people that, like like I said, people that have connected with me over mental illness, over things like this, and you start finding your way through some of these really thorny paths that that never got resolved or that got hurt or whatever. You start finding your way through it with these people and you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death with the people of God. Mm. And that's what life post church has been like for me, to be honest with you. Like a lot of it's been a lot of anger and cynicism on my part, but also knowing that Jesus doesn't give up on me like in a real way because people keep coming to me and saying God loves you in a way that they didn't tell me when I was in a physical building. Like there's a a friend of mine who's writing a book about church experiences and she's pretty like mainstream evangelical, like you go to church, you do this. And she knows my story. She asked me to write something for the book about leaving church. Yeah. And she acknowledges and validates my experience, even though she believes people need to be in church, like, you know, in a physical church and a physical congregation or whatnot. Sure. She validates my experience and says, I'm sorry you feel this way. I hope you find, I hope you find what you're looking for. I hope you find a congregation. And she has this hope and this belief for me, which I don't know if I'm ever going to find another congregation or not, but I appreciate that from her because she cares 
in a, in a way like a, in, a, in a way that I've never experienced before since I started like helping out with youth group and all this stuff and in a way that she's not expecting anything of me. She just cares. That to me speaks more about grace and more about this acceptance of the people of God and more about love than any sermon could. Yeah. And Aaron is, I mean, I've been loving our conversation. I wish it could go on way longer, but as we kind of bring our discussion to a close, what's something that you feel the church needs to hear from someone in your position? I mean, we've already covered so many things where I'll never look at mental illness the same way again, but where do you feel the church and mental illness need to intersect? Um, I believe they need to intersect with compassion. Um, The idea of suffering with someone, the idea of not letting somebody pull into isolation, but going after them. You know, the whole, the whole analogy of the 99 and the one lost sheep, maybe that one lost sheep had a, had a depressive episode. Maybe they had a psychosis break. Maybe they were in the mental institution. Maybe they were, you know, in the psych ward I mean, whatever. Go after them. There's no reason not to. There's no reason not to suffer with them. And if you do it as a community, you're not burning yourself out. You're not the one person that's taking care of them because no one person can do that. And no one person is going to end up saving somebody with mental illness or anything like that. We don't expect anybody to. But if a community comes after you, one, you're going to get a much wider variety of food if people are taking care of you that way. Sure. But two, you're also going to feel a safe place. Like people coming around you, cradling you, people creating a pocket for you to exist in. And it's a safe place for you to heal. And I think that goes also for people that have been burned by the church and been really hurt by it. If a congregation really cares, if a community really cares, whatever the community looks like, if they're willing to suffer with the person and come around them, it's going to bring healing in a way that, in a way that needs to happen. It's great, man, and and thank you so much for making the time to come on the show. Uh, where can people find you online? Uh, maybe something you're working on. How can people connect with you? Um, well, you can connect with me on my blog. It's culturalsavage.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter under cultural savage, um, pretty much everywhere under cultural savage. So if you search that, you can find me. Um, I'm working on my second book right now, um, which I'm excited. I'm hoping to be done with the first draft at the end of January. Again, talking about some of this stuff and you can find me in some different anthologies, uh, father factor, um, whispers in the pews, stigma fighters, and whoever is listening. If you want to talk, feel free to reach out to me. I'm, I'm, I'm always open to talk, you know, DM me, message me on Facebook, cultural savage there too. send me a message through my blog. I'm always, I'm always open. I'm, I'm not, I'm not shy about talking to people. So that's awesome, man. And thanks so much once again for being on the show. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Me too, man. Thank you. And that wraps up this episode of The Dismantle. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the topic we talked about today. Maybe your experience with mental illness or ways that we can continue to build up the community that we have here. You can visit us at the website at dismantlepod.com or on Patreon at slash dismantlepod. And you can follow us on Instagram. We love hearing from you. And until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. You've been listening to The Dismantle creating community, not converts. Visit us at dismantlepod.com.